0: Hello, and welcome to St. Sinner's Salvageable, a look inside America's electoral system. I'm your host, Ben Ginsberg, and each week throughout the end of the 2022 election season, we'll examine the issues surrounding casting, counting, and certification of this year's voting. I spent four decades representing Republican candidates and committees, and this is my guided tour through the election system and the issues which will make this cycle so contentious and scrutinized. Today, we'll drill down on the unprecedented number of candidates doubting the accuracy of elections who are actually seeking the job of running those elections and what all that might mean. One estimate from 538.com says that one in two Americans will have an election denying candidate on their ballot for a state, county, or municipal office with authority over election. In one sense, We shouldn't be surprised at that number. Polls show 30% of the public does not believe our elections are reliable. That is a strikingly high number and is reflected in the historically high number of candidates who have said they would not have certified the 2020 election if they had been in the office they are seeking. While most say they are running to fix our broken election system, it is not clear how they'll do that if elected and whether the cure would be more harmful than the perceived disease. Today, we want to explore those issues, how elections are run, and what an election denier might do if actually elected to office. Joining me are two guests to help us drill down on this topic. Trey Grayson is the former Kentucky Secretary of State and former president of the National Association of Secretaries of State. He has also been director of Harvard's Institute of Politics and served on the presidential connection on election administration as a commissioner. He is currently with the Frost Brown Todd firm in Kentucky and Washington, where his clients include the association representing local election administrators. Zach Montalaro is a reporter for Politico, where he is currently the state politics reporter covering election uh, issues and election administration uh, in all the states and on the national level. He's also worked at the National Journal. And on August 29th, he wrote a political uh, uh and on August 29th, he wrote a politico article that with the comprehensive headline When Election Deniers Become an Election Chiefs. So you two are excellent people to help us delve into this um, important and as I said, unprecedented subject. So let's get right to it. So Trey. Let's start off by telling us what chief election officers do. That's usually the secretaries of state. But what all do you do to put on an election? What falls under the the tasks?
1: So the title chief election officer is is one that every state has one under federal law It's a requirement. Um, Essentially, that title itself just means you're the person that gets sued if you're not complying with state and with uh, federal laws. But in about three quarters of the state, that person is a secretary of state. Um, and others, that's maybe a state election director. Um, and and, and, and um, but basically, it varies state by state. We used to joke, with, when you've seen one Secretary of State, or if you've seen one Chief Election Officer, you've seen, you've seen one. It looks a little bit different. But in general, at the state level, states certify voting equipment. They certify election results. They work with local election administrators. Usually, these uh, uh, states are pretty decentralized, where the locals are actually kind of conducting the election, and they just send the vote totals up to the state. Um, state also will also, uh, these election officials, election administrators will promulgate regulations um, that they've been authorized to do that under, under state law. Uh, there's also this informal role, kind of like the bully pulpit, if you will. Because they have this title, there, it's the easiest place for members of the media, for average citizens to go for election administration. And, and so you have the stability, you're gonna be viewed as an election expert, uh, if you have this title, even if that's not an official statutory duty, you have this public kind of persona. Um, and that can help with legislation that can help shape voter confidence, uh, it can help disseminate information. So it there's a variety of of, of duties. and again, it varies state by state. Um, and uh, but that that that's what that's what we did. That's what we did in Kentucky, um and that's what a lot of my colleagues around the country do.
0: Very good. And so, Zach, you've reported extensively on state races, and trade describes a a job description where putting on elections and uh, helping people cast ballots and certifying the votes and getting the duly elected candidates in office is essential. Which are the races that you'll be looking at in 2022, uh, where uh, people who say our election systems are all messed up, might get elected, what are the main ones we should be watching? Yeah,
2: so it probably breaks down into two buckets. The first is the prototypical swing states that we all spend so much time obsessing over every two or four years, right? Um, There are election deniers running for secretary of state in Michigan, in Arizona, in Nevada, uh, in Pennsylvania, the the Republican nominee for governor, Doug Mastriano, will get to appoint the Secretary of State should he win uh, in November. So it's kind of those four core states that you know everyone thinks about for the presidential election. They all have governor races or Senate races this year. There's those states, and then there's the second bucket, states that don't really get the national headlines because you know on at least a statewide or federal level, they just aren't that close. But there's a group of candidates running in these states as well um, that kind of fit that mold, but won't get the same amount of attention. States like potentially um, Wyoming, Indiana, states in that category as well as you know not going to have an impact on the presidential race in 2024. We're not watching a statewide race there in 2022, but they are still chief election officials. Um, And I guess you know there's 25 states I think this year that have their chief election official on the ballot. So if you're in one of those states, uh, even if you are in a blue state or a red state, you should care about who's running your election. But it's it's kind of that core for uh, battleground states that are going to get the most attention going into November.
0: And also, um, Trey, talk a little bit about the interactions between the Secretary of State and county and municipal election officials, because uh, there are also people who have questioned the accuracy of, of elections running for those bunch more local. Office.
1: Yeah, you know, in, in almost every state, the um, the local elections are administered at a local level, either either by somebody who's elected or appointed. Uh, and if they're appointed, they're usually appointed by a local governing jurisdiction. Um, there are a few states that are more top down, but it, but almost every state it's really you know kind of administered where boots hit, hit the ground, even if the policies are set in the state level at the local level. And so we've seen some some vulnerability at the local level. We've you know Tina Peters, who's probably one of the most prom- probably the most famous election administrator. In uh, the country is from Colorado, and she's the one who's gotten in trouble with sharing source code, putting it on the internet. Um, she actually tried to run for Secretary of State in Colorado, and lost in the Republican primary, which is probably why that state is not on Zach's Big Four list. Um, and then, uh, you know, we we there's some other counties across. Coffee County, Georgia, is now big because there's actually video footage of somebody coming in that looks like they were taking some equipment, um, and so. There are some of these, you know some of these local election administrators who, um, you know most of them are underfunded, overworked, and and are just trying to do their very best. Many of them have other duties other than elections. Uh, in Kentucky, for example, our county clerks. That's where you go register your card to get a license plate, and you record a deed and get a marriage license. Uh, but in states like Florida, they actually that's all they do is the election supervising. So that again varies state by state. But these local administrators play a big role, and we've unfortunately seen a few um, a few folks um, step up or, or are currently in office who uh, would you know fall into the category of election deniers. And
0: Zach, one of the um one of the smoke signals in American politics for elections uh, and their importance is money that goes into the race. Have you seen an influx of money in twenty twenty two? going into not only secretaries and state races, but also uh, the more county and local one?
2: Yeah, it's certainly more than the past, but that's a fairly low bar to clear. Um, <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> I can tell you that from firsthand experience. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, Trey, someone who's ran for both secretary of state and other offices, right? And they're just so different scale about the amount of money going into these races that you know, I've talked to current secretary of state candidates like, wow, this has been our best, you know, fundraising ever. We raised one point five million dollars in some of these states that even can't that can't buy you a week of TV when we're talking about, you know, multiples of that tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars for Senate races, especially for governor races. So it's this interesting dichotomy that these secretary races are so important, um, but they're so you know, like their offices themselves, the, can- the campaigns are underfunded. And that's especially true for those clerkship races too, you know, your clerk, your registrar, where they're elected, things like that. Um, we've seen a little bit more institutional support for those roles, for those elections this cycle. Um, and by there being any at all is raising the floor, but these don't approach the level of a house member or a senator or a governor or anything like that.
0: Very good. So as both of you have scrutinized the the election system and uh, what's coming under criticism, what do you believe the main weaknesses are in that election system, and especially um, what you're hearing the candidates for these offices say? Uh, Trey, what what weaknesses are, are they basing their campaign?
1: Well, I think what you're hearing from some of the Republican candidates who um, you know, are raising questions about the, the election system. One is um, lack of confidence in vote by mail. You know, some of this is uh, it, it's ironic because traditionally, and Ben, you know this from the campaigns you worked on in the past, Republicans used in, in states that allowed unlimited vote by mail, meaning you could vote by mail without an excuse, Republicans generally did pretty well and embraced that type of voting. But with COVID, Several states who had never had this were forced to use some unlimited vote by mail uh, because of health concerns. And that caused a whole lot of people who hadn't thought about it before to to ask questions. Is this safe? What are the safeguards? We also had a president undermining it. Another concern that you hear talked about is um, whether the machines are accurately counting the votes. And we've even had some people go so far as saying, we should hand count the results Initially, not during a recount, not as a check, uh, but actually our initial count on election night, if you will, should be by hand. Um, those are two of them, and then, and then related to kind of the vote by mail, you've got the the vote hauling um, or the the vote harvesting, excuse me, dropping off multiple ballots at a drop box. Uh, the notion of a drop box in general, even though we have them, they're blue, they're called the U.S. Postal Service mailboxes. Um, and then there's also this kind of vague claim that our elections are okay, but I have questions about other states, um, which is uh, you know kind of a wink and a nod to some of these some of these questions. Uh, but those are a lot of the things that I've heard from some of the folks um, who are raising questions in these primary in the primaries and are now continuing as messages in the general.
0: And Zach, based on your reporting, um, which one of those charges, especially in the primaries, seem to um, have been most effective in uh, in in resonating with voters, Zach.
2: Yeah, um, I, I think Trey really nailed it. And the first two he identified the the questions around mail voting um, and and the questions around the machinery used to to process uh, ballots are kind of the ones that have been most animating among these these kind of candidates. And the mail voting one is like the most interesting to me too because there I think there's this mistaken belief, certainly by the former president and a lot of his supporters, but even, you know, well-intentioned people that we, Americans as a general practice in a lot of states just get a ballot mailed to them without requesting it. Um, That's not actually the case. You know, there's 50 states in the District of Columbia and they have 51 different ways doing elections. So, you know, there's no generalization, but most states don't mail voters ballots. Um, That number is gonna grow a little bit this year. California's added to that list as a permanent situation, Nevada as well but by and large, most American voters don't automatically get a ballot mailed to their house. And there's been a lot of confusion and this is long running confusion. I'm sure Trey can speak about it too. The difference between um, getting a ballot mailed to you and getting a ballot request form mailed to you. Uh, we've seen a lot of those kind of mixed up over the last couple of years. And some people say, you know, in, in, in good faith, or even just confusion, like, oh, what well, I got three or four ballots mailed to my house in my name. How is this possible? When they're not actually getting ballots mailed to their house, they're getting ballot request forms mailed to their house. Cause in some states, third party organizations can send them and they'll just kind of drop them in your mailbox. So a lot of confusion with that. And as as Trey mentioned too, the 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 um the machines, the the there's been a that's been central to a lot of these kind of doubts about the election and, and they're unfounded, to be clear. There is no um, there is no evidence of flipped votes or anything like that. Um But it's been the mixture of legitimate security experts raising sometimes um, archaic and specific concerns about security of election machines versus the actual practice that some security experts have raised concerns about potential vulnerabilities in the machines, but there's been no evidence that they've been um, actually acted upon. And and it's it's taking that leap from these theoretical concerns to actual allegations of hacking that that haven't happened um, that that's kind of kicked up a lot of dirt recently.
0: Yeah, Craig.
1: Well, you know, I think that um, this, uh, you know, the last. I think one of the challenges right now, we're at this time point where, you know, we're already the local election administrators the state election administrators, they're getting, you know, they have started their serious planning, they're already sent out absentee ballots, you know, all the primaries are done and we've got um you know one of the things that's been interesting going on right now actually that's been been plaguing all this so these are some policy arguments but some of these groups some of these folks have been asking people to do open records requests um bombarding local election administrators um trying to gather information in part because they don't trust the machines and things like that and so um it's just a really tough time for these election administrators right now um and and there's a lot of uncertainty with with this coming election and what people what it's going to look like and so um i really feel for these folks and we've seen a lot of turnover you know we've seen retirements at all levels um and so that even if even if the person who's coming in is um is qualified they don't have the same level of experience and, and so it's a real it's a real shock to the system overall
0: That's certainly true. And I want to talk a little bit about one of the ironies of the Republican criticism of vote by mail, which is Republicans have always benefited in most states tremendously from voting by mail, at least pre-COVID. So the impact of that on the campaigns for um, for state races. Uh, Zach, I know at one point Politico wrote some interesting articles about how even as um, President, former President Trump was criticizing uh, vote by mail, Republican state parties were advocating or sending out vote by mail packages. Do you think that's likely to be a factor in this uh, in this election as well? Yeah,
2: you know it, it's kind of interesting that we saw like a very demonstrated shift of certain populations moving toward vote by mail during the pandemic and certain populations moving away. And by certain populations moving away, I mean Republicans, because of what the former president just relentlessly did. It wasn't like a one-off situation. It wasn't a post-election situation. Running up to the election, just uh, former President Trump, just every possible opportunity, he attacked the security of mail balloting, um, which was unfounded, to be clear, when he did that. You know, but it I, I don't think Republicans are going to abandon the process either, because it, it is in many ways, you know, it's both cheaper for campaigns to, to get voters to do it. The, the old adage of folks on campaigns is that, you know, you hate getting phone calls, you hate getting emails, you hate us knocking on your door. If you turn in your mail ballot and you show up in the system, we won't bother you anymore. So it's easier to chase your voters. And, and you know, it is still wildly available to most Americans. 35 states, I think, is what we're at allow voters uh, to allow any voter to request a mail ballot, uh, regardless of having, a you know, a, an excuse or not. Those remaining states require some sort of excuse, be it age or being out of the county or things like that. Um, and, and, you know, Florida Republicans have won a series of close elections because they've been really good at getting their voters to return their mail ballots. I don't think they're going to Move away from that. They probably won't refer to them as mail ballots. They'll probably be called, you know, in, in in campaigning, you know, absentee ballots or things like that. They won't use the term mail-in voting. But you know, despite the former president's attacks on on it, I don't think as a political strategy, Republican um, campaigns are going to move away from it. They might do it a little bit quieter, uh, but they, they're not going to avoid, you know, pushing their voters in that direction.
0: Uh, and Trey, I want to uh, talk a little bit more about the machines and their accuracy. Can you describe the procedures in Kentucky and what you know about for the rest of the country for the testing of machine accuracy, especially before the voting occurs?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, this goes back to the 2000 presidential election, Bush v. Gore, where there are some voluntary um, guidelines on voting system security. And so as a country, as uh, Congress passed the Help America Vote Act and created new standards, um, they're technically guidelines, they're not mandatory, but most states and in Kentucky's including require any system that's sold in our state to meet those federal guidelines. So you have to start there to have a machine that's used in almost every state. You, gotta, you have to meet that federal guideline. And then most states also still run those machines through some level of testing as well. So that's just to to be able to sell a model type. So then the specific voting systems, you know, they're programmed before each election. And so now when we say voting systems, most votes are now cast on paper. And sometimes that's with the ballot marking device where a a piece of paper is marked. Um, And other times it's just you mark it yourself, but either way it goes through a scanner. And and before each election, after the programming and before election day, and, and when I say election day, before the day upon which any votes would be run through that system, There's what's called logic and accuracy testing, or L&A. And in logic and accuracy testing, you run a sample election with with some ballots. Um, You know what ballots you produced, so you know what the outcome should be, and you run it through the voting systems to test. It's kind of like test driving a car before you buy it at the dealership. Um, And so you run it through every single the machines. And if it doesn't work, if the numbers don't match, then you got to go figure something out. So that's done before every election. That's usually done in of Republicans and Democrats because most of our elections are governed in that way, often even in a mode of an open meeting. So before everything is rolled out on election day, you you've got the federal certification and the LNA, um, and there are also in most cases machines that have been used in the past. And again, there's there's different audits and recounts to try to look at that. So um, that's designed so that we just don't have um, a fly by the night operator or somebody just trying a new method. Um, and and that that's one of the reasons why when you see a recount. The counts almost inevitably are 100% accurate when you do a hand recount after an election. We just went through a state senate recount in my home, the part of Kentucky where I live, and it was literally one for one. It was the perfect match. And, and sometimes there's a variance here or there because somebody circles the number instead of coloring it in or something like that. Um, but that testing in, is something that a lot of voters, I think, don't don't understand the logic and accuracy part that's done before every election to test it out. Um, and uh, but it but it's an important feature, and it's why uh, folks who understand elections have confidence that uh, the systems can work. The other thing, and 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 Zach mentioned some of the some, some of the potential vulnerabilities because you're dealing with a, essentially a computer, and you're dealing with individuals and humans, and so it's like kind of like banking. Like you, to rob money, you got to go to a bank to rob the money, right? So banks have safes, and video cameras, and die packs, and security guards, and all this other stuff to, to reduce the vulnerability. And the same thing in elections. You know, we, have, we, we train individuals, we have seals, we have all of this testing uh, because we know there could be some vulnerabilities. So we try to minimize the access points. You don't reuse, if there's a computer that's being used to count votes, the only thing you use it for is to count votes. You don't connect it to the internet to check Twitter. Um, you know, There's a lot of safeguards that are built into place that are just kind of common sense, the kind of things we use in other parts of our lives that uh, increase the security of the voting systems.
0: And Zach, have you in, in your reporting come across anything that should cause people to doubt the accuracy of elections or at least question it? Um, the short answer is no. Um, America has, you know,
2: I'm going to steal a line from someone we all know fairly well, David Becker, and he says all the time that, you know, elections in America are run by tens of thousands of volunteers. There's always going to be mistakes or something here and there, but As far as malicious activity that like dramatically changes the outcome of an election, no, it doesn't happen in American elections. Um, If anything, I've been covering election security, election officials now for, you know, going on three or four years, I've become more confident in security of American elections for all these things that Trey kind of listed out. You know, it's, you know, elections aren't just a one day thing. It's the logic and accuracy tests that are open to the public. It's post-election, audits, and by audits I mean the actual audits and not some things we saw uh, in in places like Arizona that were kind of made up as they go along. States increasingly now are not only, you know, doing pre-election testing of their machines, they're doing post-election testing of their machines, and it turns out the results are accurate. Um, You know, American elections have so many points of entry because, as we've said over and over today, it's a bottom-up system in so many states, but election officials, by and large, are trying to do a good job um, and they do do a good job. Um, and, and I think especially, you know, we've seen an increased over the past couple of years, especially since 2016, um, we've seen like an increased focus on, on building like institutional um, trust, be it NAS, National Associated Secretary of States, be it more cooperation between states and the federal government um, that should, give people, you know, more confidence in security of elections that, you know, a random guy can't just walk off the street, walk into a local election official office, uh, power up the voting machine and and do something bad to it. There's, There's many, many layers of security between now, between there and the casting of the vote that stops people. And, you know, the move in America to having largely paper, Paper ballot backups is is important too. That we we are able to confirm in, in most of these cases, you know that what the machine said is actually what happened. That's what happened in Georgia. Georgia did it went above and beyond after the twenty twenty election, and hand recounted literally every ballot in the state. But the and it turns out that the, it matched nearly one to one after the twenty twenty election. But having those, you know, what should be trust building steps or or trust building things in the end to prove that the elections were valid are good and and should kind of make people more trustful of American elections?
0: So uh, despite all of that, there still is 30% of the population at least that questions the accuracy of US elections. And that's what is fueling election denier candidates. It seems that we have a system that is not broken, but not everyone agrees on it. So if one of the election denier candidates um, gets elected, what are the kinds of things that um, they have said they'll do? In other words, they would argue they're fixing elections also. What would they do to manage to fix it? Uh, Zach, you you wrote that great article on August 29th, in Politico sort of Summing this up. So, you want to take the first crack at, at some of the things we might see?
2: Yeah. And it, it varies so much state by state because every Secretary of State has different powers from a relatively strong Secretary of State office to a relatively weak one that can really suggest things. And, you know, some of the things that these folks promise are, are just like not feasible. Um, things like they cannot individually overhaul state election law that needs to go through the legislature and be signed by a governor. So, a lot of these folks say they wanna eliminate mail balloting um, to the greatest extent possible. And in some cases, even eliminate, eliminate in-person absentee voting and move as much as possible to a single day of voting on election day. That can't be done by a secretary of state. They can't just snap their fingers, change their state election. Well, there's many, many steps along the way. What, what, Depending on the state, what can be done, um, it, 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 it could raise some serious concerns. Um, the one that gets the most attention is, is on the certification of elections what if a chief election official just declines to certify election results or certifies incorrect knowingly incorrect election results we have no real history to kind of go back on that other than to say that would almost assuredly end up in the nearest courthouse uh, to, uh instantaneously but there's there's other things too you know it's um it, it's to the degree that a you know a stronger secretary of state can set election policy in their state, it, you know, while they can't change the law, can they frustrate parts of the election system? Can they make it harder? Can they decertify election machines or or add specific requirements that are that are onerous? Can they uh, change forms to to discourage certain types of voting? Um, can they make the use of drop boxes more onerous and more challenging for jurisdictions? And I think one of the things that's really um, undervalued about what an election official can do, and Trey alluded to this earlier, is that power of the bully pulpit. I think we, as folks who think about elections a lot more than the average American, maybe underestimate how much power you know your chief election official has to, to just give information to voters um, but that that bully pulpit power, I think, is really big. And I'll, I'll, I'll let Trey kind of go into that more since he had that bully pulpit for a
0: little bit. Yeah, Trey, now you get to play your own evil twin. And yeah. uh...
1: <laughs> well, Zach had a great list. I'm not sure I have much to add to his list, but let me talk about some of those things a little bit more, maybe from the perspective of somebody who used to be secretary of state. I mean, we did actually get a little trial run at the local level of a, a local jurisdiction in New Mexico that didn't want to certify an election uh, county. The The county commission that did that refused to do so, uh, breaking on party lines, because uh, it took an affirmative vote to actually certify and uh, the New Mexico Secretary of State went to court, judge very quickly as Zach predicted that would happen, um, said you have to certify and uh, one of the two original votes against certification shifted her vote and it got certified. So we'll we'll see that. I mean, um, there have been other instances where there may have been a, a, a dispute about certification that maybe it's more grounded in reality, and courts have stepped in and will weigh the evidence. Um, so that that's probably how how that plays out. You mentioned Zach mentioned decertifying machines. I remember um, in the in the two thousands when the Help America Vote Act was implemented, one of the things that we were required to do across the country was to roll out accessible voting equipment to everyone. The original what we call DREs in the trade, uh, which are electronic voting machines, they look like ATMs. Um, those turned out to have some security vulnerabilities, and that's why we kind of moved back towards casting vote on paper with a ballot marking device. Is the ve- and the ballot marking device is the um, vehicle to have accessible voting, but the idea is to get it on a piece of paper because you, the voter, can verify that piece of paper that that, uh, and you can go back and do an audit or a recount. Well, I remember uh, I think it was the California Secretary of State just um, when she learned about some of the security concerns, just decertified all the machines. And we've had other secretaries um, do that in states where they had that power. Now, those were cases where they were doing it, um, you know, with good reason. <laughs> um, but it was pretty controversial at the time. And uh, you know, after I think history wore born out that those were successful decisions. And so there are instances where they, they they've taken, Steps, but there is this, um, you know, judicial check. There's also the ability for the legislature to take take duties away, or add duties, or give them to somebody else. You know, in Kentucky, for example, my um, successor uh, had some investigations with the ethics commission and some criminal investigations. Ultimately, the criminal investigations uh, she never was charged. Uh, but for a couple of years, the state weakened the power of the secretary of state. Uh, and created a more, or, or we always had a Board of Elections that certified elections and was played a bigger role. So it already was kind of decentralized, but they made it even more decentralized by removing the Secretary of State as chair of the State Board of Elections. Um, and so we've seen talk in Idaho, or not Idaho, Wyoming, excuse me, Wyoming, where um, an election denier has won the Republican nomination. There's not a Democratic on candidate on the ballot for Secretary of State. I think there's an independent or third-party candidate. So that Republican's going to win anyway and it's plus it's Wyoming where the Republicans almost always win uh, and we've already seen Republican legislators talk about changing laws in anticipation of having this person uh, in charge of the office so that is one thing that can be done but obviously it takes time to change laws and uh, most states have part-time legislatures and so you you can't move quickly um so there are some things that we can we can do but yeah there you know but again varies by state um and and i and I think to maybe to echo Zach's last thing is this this kind of symbolic power, the bully power, the bully pulpit. if you know, if the person who's doing all the press and travels around the the state is undermining competence in elections, um, that's real harm. You know, a judge can't stop them probably from saying things like, you know that would be not true that would undermine the competence in elections. The legislature can't do that because even if you I guess you could take all the duties away, like they've done in Wisconsin, where they still have a secretary who doesn't do much, um. But, uh, you know, if you're a public figure, you can still go around and do podcasts and do whatever and still still cause mischief that way.
0: Yeah. And of course, there are there have been a couple of candidates really for governor who have suggested they would decertify the voter roll and require everyone to re-register. That would have a fairly significant impact.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's one, a good one. And, you know, and it is a challenge because technically Congress is regulating federal elections. And so, you know, there have been fights over the years about could you have a secondary list for non-federal elections? I mean, practically, that's just a stupid idea, even if it's allowed. Um, It's hard enough to keep an accurate list (laughs) when you just have one statewide list. Uh, And if you had a second list of eligibility for local and state elections, um, which are conducted at the same time, I mean, it's just, it's, some of this stuff, when you hear people say this, it's just so frustrating to me when I, when I see people who, in theory, are, should be intelligent enough to know better. And then voters who hear this, and like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Like, no, that's a terrible idea. If you actually believe in election security, that, that's actually making it less secure. <laughs> yeah, like, um,
0: like hand counting ballots, as we saw in the yeah. Florida 2000 recount and every other recount before and since the human dimension yeah. Counting paper ballots is far less accurate than, uh, than a uh, machine without feeling.
1: Yeah, and it takes a long time unless you're going to spend a lot of money hiring a bunch of people to count the ballots. And then these are the same folks who say we want to have results on election night. Like, um, no, <laughs> you can't hand count every vote, have it be accurate and get your results on election night. That's just impossible.
2: I see. Folks may only think about, you know, on voting for president and my senator. But what about your maybe literally county Dog catcher, right? It, you know, some of these ballots could have seventy people on the ballot. Hand counting that is is implausible.
1: I guess is a delicate way of putting it. Yeah, Zach. When Ben and I were on the the commission that the Presidential Commission on Election Administration, Ben was one of the co chairs. We went to Florida, and I, one of the counties in Florida I remember had I think was it Ben like four pages of a ballot, maybe like yeah. Miami Dade, because they had um you know state races, local races. They had ballot questions, and it was four pages front and back, it literally took them, I think we estimated if you didn't know how you were going to vote and you actually like read all the names and read the um, ballot questions, it could have taken you 30 minutes to go through that ballot. Yeah, wonder why they had long lines in that community. I mean, that was part of it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was certainly part of it. Um, so we we painted a, a picture here of an election system in which people should have competence. yet there is this great um, there's this great skepticism. So I wanna ask you both, um, what advice you would give to elections officials to be able to tell the story uh, of their system better? First, Trey, you from the position of a secretary, what what should you be doing? Uh,
1: One thing is is just to keep in mind that most people have no idea how this process works. Um, They, they, so emphasize the, the, the bipartisan nature of, basically everything we do in elections. You know, the, the, there's at every polling place, there's members of both political parties, um, they're there counting ballots, they're there reviewing absentee ballot eligibility, they're, they're machine certification, they're at logic and accuracy testing. All throughout, we have baked in bipartisanship. Um, so Republicans and Democrats are there together. Now, you know, some of the independents might not like that, but the fact is most Americans fall into one or the other, and that's good. The second thing is that a lot of this that we do are very transparent with a lot of this stuff. And again, these are done at open meetings. And I think if people understood, you know, we're trying to show you how this works. We're doing it in front of, um, of both parties. A lot of a lot of these are now live stream. People have been able to take advantage of technology to show some of these things um, that that kind of framing when you educate voters is, is pretty important. I think the third thing is to set reasonable expectations. One One thing I always tell election administrators is don't when you defend the system don't say the system's perfect and that the problems will never happen we have problems on every election day you know i remember on uh somebody in the media would ask me how'd it go I'm like it was a pretty good day but if you happen to be in the one precinct where the machine didn't work when the when at 6 a.m when the polling place opened you didn't have a good election day because you had a longer line or you had to come back and there are always instances like that and so don't don't exaggerate the system which is a pretty good system. And I think it's better today than it was 20 years ago. Um, because then you're setting yourself up to be easily defeated in an argument. Um, set reasonable expectations, talk about the safeguards, the transparency and the bipartisanship, and that kind of messaging um, you know, is is can work. And I guess the last thing I would just say is just be out there, be visible. You know, this is the role that Secretary of States can really be positive about is explaining and defending the system. Uh, answering those questions. And, and so our Secretary of State in Kentucky, Mike Adams, um, Mike's been traveling around the state and, and hitting every little group for lunch, you know, every service club and every little chamber of commerce and visiting schools. And he gets media coverage everywhere he goes and he keeps telling the, that story. And I see Secretary of States across the country doing that. And that's, that's really, really important um, to help people to understand um, the safeguards that are in there, and why you should have confidence in our system.
0: And of course, county and municipal uh, elections officials can do the same thing. And they can do the same.
1: Yeah, I usually it's harder for them to, frankly, because they have um, they're most, they're 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 busy running the election, and secretary of states, you know, usually have a little bit more time to interact with the media. <laughs> um, but yeah, they they can do the same too. And what they can do is probably easier to open up the locals to show them this is how it works. You know, come here, you can take them to the county fairs and. And take a system to the county fairs. Be accessible. Um, you know, don't be a aff- don't hunker down. I think that's the, that's another you know part of this is don't hunker down. And the more you talk about this, I think you'll you'll persuade most people, not everybody, but you'll persuade most people that it, that they should have confidence.
0: Zach, as a reporter, are there um, stories that you would like to be able to report that there's some reluctance to? Do you, you have advice for uh, elections officials on getting out the story on the, the accuracy here. Yeah. So I I guess it's kind of bifurcated. I'm a, I'm a national
2: reporter, right? So maybe it's a little bit different, uh, talking to me, but the willingness to talk to the media is always helpful. And I say that a little bit selfishly, but, um, we, the media broadly can't report on what your frustrations are. it be it more funding, be it, you know, Hey, like this really interesting or strange rule makes my job harder. I don't know about that unless you tell me about it. Um, so being willing to talk to election officials to talk to the media is helpful. And that's especially true um, for your local media. Uh, of course, I want every election official in the country, you can call it Politico at any moment and I will answer your call. But um, talk to your local newspaper, your local TV station, um, and not just around elections. You know, Trey alluded to this, right? But like, you gotta get where the people are. Most people think of elections once a year and that is when they're casting their ballot, either at their kitchen table or in the in the ballot or in the polling booth. Um, it's it's the onus on election officials to say, you know, we actually think about elections 365 days a year, seven days a week, in many cases 24 hours a day. That yeah, you know, I know a lot of you, these folks don't sleep and just think about elections. So communicate, I guess, with with the national media, of course, but with your local media. Invite your uh, you know, I I think it's probably helpful to have your local TV station come in and show. Okay, this is how we count ballots, or this is how, um, this is how this is uh this is how ballots are counted. This is how we register for poll workers. This is how we're recruiting poll workers and things like that. Um, going out to the community, you know, I, it's changed a lot even in the three or four years that I've done this. I, I've covered this. That I've found it a lot easier to get election officials to talk to me about, you know. The good and the bad of the job, and it wasn't always that way. Especially, you know, when I first started reporting on this. So, but it, but as important as Politico is, as important as you know CNN or the New York Times or the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, or whatever, pick your favorite national media outlet. um, It's really hard to beat the impact, the local impact that that local TV station and local newspaper can have of actually informing voters what's going on, because most Americans just don't know how elections work. They think that they check the box, they put it in their mailbox, they pull the lever, whatever the you know proper terminology is, and they just think it's counted. So it, it's it's not malice that a lot of folks come with questions. It, it it's just um, a lack of knowledge, and and and
0: proactively trying to address that is I think probably important. Good advice. Um, all right, so we have just a few minutes left, and I'd like to close with what is perhaps a whimsical hypothetical, but Let's suppose that people who are criticizing the accuracy of elections actually win and become responsible for putting on those elections. 2024 comes along. They've had time to reform the system. In a lot of ways, they're going to own the elections in their state. Um, Would an election denier uh, throw out an election result in his or her state when they were in charge of that very process. In other words, question is, do you see a potential change in behavior and rhetoric uh, from election deniers? Should they be in charge of the actual system?
1: Right? Yeah, I think that this is not an implausible scenario. You know, I, I, you always think about how people campaign one way and govern another. Or you govern and you criticize your predecessor and then, you know, oh, we are broke. We need to keep that tax in place that I campaigned against, you know. Um, and we've actually seen um, at least one of the election deniers or at least somebody who's had, I, that might be an exaggeration compared to some of the other candidates, but one of the Republican candidates has already pivoted now that he's in a general election. So I, I think you, I think it is possible that once you're in office and you own it, you'll see some of this. Um, you know, the one, I think the one challenge though here is the uh, issue of, you know, when my candidate doesn't win, right? Like, you know, and and, and and so do they feel like they're empowered to try to save the day for their candidate? Uh, but the reality is, is that there's a whole lot of people, you know, they just won in 2022. Um, Cause that's, you know, in your hypothetical, that's how, how they win. A lot of their colleagues are gonna get elected. Um, was that were those elections invalid? And so I, I, I suspect that we may not see some of these folks um, try to cancel results. Because how do you how do you do it for one race? You know. So I I, I I'm going to be this is me being like a combination of like hopeful and cynical. I'm cynical enough to believe that some of these folks are going to pivot, which gives me hope. Does that make <laughs> sense?
0: <laughs> it does. Zach, you get the last word. Um,
2: I maybe come down on the little bit more pessimistic side than Trey is I just think we're approaching what could potentially be uncharted territory. Um, I have talked to a quite a few election officials current and former over the last three years um, and almost to an individual every one of them from any party Democrats Republicans I've talked to very conservative Republicans and very liberal Democrats uh, who were election officials and all of them want to run a free and fair election. There is, of course, very uh, dramatic disagreements among some folks about, you know, what the rules to run an election are, on you know, should be. Um, but by and large, every election official I talk to um, but believes in American elections and trusts American elections. Some of these candidates that we've kind of alluded to I just have not demonstrated that same commitment. Um, and I don't know, I don't know, I don't think. I don't think, we really know what's going to happen in 2024. You know, I, I, um, to quote, I guess a secretary I've talked to a few times, Frank LaRoe is out in Ohio, and he always says, you know, the best way that that to have somebody who has questioned elections to not question them is have them help run one. And he's talking about local people coming in and being poll workers. Maybe we'll see that on on a, on a broader scale, a uh, statewide. I think that's probably. Um, it, it's a possibility, sure, but it, it's just uncharted territory right now. Not, not to end it on a bleak note, but I think we'll be going through uh, a, a lot of uncharted territory in the next two to four years.
0: Well, we, we always like to end with a cliffhanger. So this is kind of the cliffhanger of American democracy. Thank Montalaro uh, from Politico and Trey Grayson, uh, former Kentucky Secretary of State, now with Frost, Brown, and Todd. Thank you very much for joining us. This is Ben Ginsberg, and you've been listening to the Saints, Sinners, and Salvage Bulls, a look inside America's electoral system.
1: This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.